rolling. As the fake news wars wage on, a worldwide coalition of elites funded by George Soros has quietly taken control of the fight against fake news. We'll tell you why that's not a good thing. Plus, while Democrats say they want to protect the dreamers, their actions tell a different story. We'll tell you why Democrats actually do not want to make a deal on DACA. You're listening to the Propaganda Report. I'm Brad Binkley, and I'm here with Monica Perez. Monica, how you doing? Good. How you doing, Binkley? I'm good. So there's been a lot of outrage about the possibility of whether or not there's going to be a deal for a deal for the dreamers because we have to save the dreamers. It's the biggest humanitarian crisis we've ever faced. And if you don't want to save the dreamers, you are evil, you are racist, and you probably want to uh, eat babies or something. But here's the thing. Democrats don't want to make a clean DACA deal. They, they don't want to save the dreamers because it doesn't help them to make a deal. If they make a deal, then that takes away this propaganda tool that they have that's going to help carry them through the 2018 midterm elections. Right now, this is one of the most divisive issues that we're talking about in the public discourse. People are triggered instantly. They were close to making a deal, and that was the story. And Trump was appearing to be open to compromise. If you watch that whole hour of him with the people in the room, Diane Feinstein, I thought he was, she was trying to trick him. And he said, yeah, I'll do a clean DACA. And then the next day we can start on a comprehensive bill. And then the Republicans interrupted him like three times. And finally, someone said, would you sign DACA without security? And he said, no, no, I wouldn't do that. But I mean, that's how close they were. Absolutely. If they were to actually enter into a deal, this would undermine the racist, uh, yes, evil, sure. compromising image of Trump that they are using to fuel the resistance to drive people to the 2018 midterm elections. They need people to come out in waves. To, the blue wave is what they're calling it. Hashtag blue wave. Check it out on Twitter. They oh, would, it's, not, it's not hashtag flip the flyovers? No, it's hashtag blue wave. It's hashtag remember November. That's another one to check out. Now, you check out those hashtags, you'll see what the – Some of the liberal talking points are. But if they made that deal, then a liberal might go, wow. I mean, if they had a a second to think, they might go, maybe Trump's not a racist, you know? They need to appear like they're fighting for the dreamers, and they need to appear like they didn't get a deal because of how evil and racist Trump is. So that's why this whole diversion to the S-hole gate happened. That's why that became the main story, because it looked like there was going to be a deal. And then all of a sudden, S-hole gate. CNN was opening all of their shows with, welcome to CNN tonight. Our president is a racist. That's how they were opening (laughs) shows. If they really wanted a deal, that would not have been the story. Democrats don't want a deal because they need the tension. They need the conflict. They need the divide and conquer tactics. I want to read to you yet another quick example of how they propagate this message to progressives just to show yet again how extreme the divide and conquer propaganda tactics are. Do you remember when I called my senator and read the indivisible script? Oh, yeah. It was so funny. You were like, this is state your name. Right. For those of you who are new to the podcast, indivisible is one of the main groups behind the Trump resistance. They basically agitate progressives into protesting, and then they provide them with resources for activism. And one of the resources that they send out are weekly call scripts focused on whatever the hot-button issue of the week is. And the purpose of the call scripts are to make it easy for people to call and harass their congressperson about whatever the issue is. I mean, it is a script in every sense of the word. It tells them what to say. It tells them what they anticipate the person on the other end of the line will say. And it tells them how to respond. It writes the dialogue for them. 
So they publish these on their website, and they send them out via social media and email, and they include a call to action for their people. And the call to action is usually something like, call your congressperson today. This is urgent, and tell them they must defend Obamacare. Otherwise, 22 million people will die. I mean, they're very extreme. I tested a couple of their scripts a few months back. I called my congressperson's office, and I had my indivisible script ready. I think it was for... Healthcare. I think that was the issue. I can't remember what the other one was. When the person answered the phone, it was one of the staffers. I followed the indivisible script verbatim. I did not stray from the script at all, and you can see how that played out on my YouTube page. There's a couple of videos. I did it twice. Subscribe while you're there. YouTube.com backslash Brad Binkley. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. But what I want to read to you, Monica, is I want to read to you the latest indivisible script, which focuses on the DREAMer Act and the controversy surrounding the DREAMer Act. The call to action that was sent out with this script is this. This is what it says. It says, tell your Republican member of Congress to reject racism and pass the DREAMer Act. In all caps, reject racism, pass the DREAMer Act. Because that's the only way that you can reject racism. Anything less than passing a clean DREAMer bill And you might as well be wearing a Klan hood. This is how they frame this issue in the minds of their constituents, of their their followers, and people believe it. If anybody disagrees with you on the issue of immigration, they might as well be burning a cross in your front yard. This is how they're propagating this issue to progressives. That stuff drives me insane. When we were talking about the Martin Luther King Day, some of those issues that he was marching to I totally get the freedom movement, but what he was demanding was wealth redistribution. You know what I mean? Freedom is not welfare or warfare. On the left, freedom is welfare. On the right, freedom is warfare. That word freedom, it's so funny how what a euphemism it is for so many other things. They always say the devil is in the details. If you if you say if you said said it like that, you can't discuss um the policy in any kind of detail. Well, it's the same thing we talked about last week with abortion, where they intentionally use the use this language and these divide and conquer tactics to prevent people from having any meaningful discourse. They do everything they can to prevent people from being able to have empathy and have a real conversation. It's so obvious to me with the identity stuff, with the racism stuff. Right. You know what I'm saying? So it's clear to me that the race thing is a way to shut people up right away, no matter what, just saying the words. And and the demonization, you've talked about this, and I'm sure you have an example on the tip of your tongue, but the demonization of the other opinion, it's not like somebody called into the WSB show not too long ago when I said about um, flip the flyovers, that colleges were trying to parachute into rural communities and pluck up the kids and kind of brainwash them at their schools, and that the Charlottesville, I guess was it, where they had the... Um, Antifa versus the neo-Nazis, like that it was a dialectic unfolding. And the guy called and said, you're starting to, you're trying to cause trouble, blah, blah, blah. And it's just because they associate what you're saying with, with bad intent. You know, they, they've created a package where if you say this thing, you are a, a racist or sexist or a, uh, you know, like the abortion thing is like you're trying to control somebody else's body. It's always demonizing somebody with a legitimately different opinion. 
Right, because they can't have people critically thinking about that opinion and seeing the reason in it because then they would start to question how extreme their own position is. Like we talked about with Trump, it would undermine the demonization of the other. So they would start to say maybe this person isn't such a monster. Right. So different. It is really irksome that different opinions about politics, ideology, even practical application, you know, policy that that it always has to be fraught with emotionalism and usually extreme negativity directed towards the other side. It just absolutely stops full stop critical thinking, as you've pointed out many times. Yeah. And when it shuts down their critical thinking, it can cause people to act against their own interests, to act against what they claim to believe in because they're blinded by the emotional outrage. And like we already talked about, it looked like they were about to get what they wanted, everything that they had been fighting for and protesting for. They were about to get a win. It looked like Trump was going to make a deal. And then all of a sudden, Cursegate happened. And now, after Cursegate... The dreamers aren't the most important thing anymore. Now, to progressives, the most important thing has become to resist Trump because of something he allegedly said behind closed doors that they allege is racist that they can't even prove. But nevertheless, the dreamers now take a backseat to identity politics. The people who progressives previously claimed that it was their moral obligation to defend, they are now willing to sacrifice, to throw under the bus because they've been conned into believing that it is now more important that they resist Trump. Even if he's about to give them what they want, they must resist. This sentiment couldn't be more present than it is in this indivisible call script, which I'll stop ranting and read to you now. I'm going to read the whole script up to the point that I want to highlight just so there's context. It's not very long. When I say stuff like name or place and state, then those are fill in the blanks that the individual person is supposed to fill in. Here's the script. Caller. That's the indivisible person. Hello, my name is Name, and I'm calling from place and state. Could you please tell me whether the senator or congressman supports protecting dreamers as a part of the continuing resolution? Staffer. Senator slash congressman doesn't think we should hold government hostage to pass the DREAM Act. She or he believes that we need a bipartisan solution to this issue that includes additional border security and changes to how we distribute visas. Caller. Democrats and Republicans had a deal before Trump and people like Tom Cotton and Bob. Good laugh, I think they call him. It looks like latte, but yeah. I love yeah. a good lot. People like Tom Cotton and Bob Goodlatte derailed it last week. Trump's racism makes it impossible to strike a deal with him. No reasonable member of Congress should be negotiating with a man who believes that we need fewer people from shithole countries and more people from places like Norway. That's, that's ridiculous that you would – I mean that's just saying it in black and white. It's ridiculous that you would – you can't look at somebody's, you know, think you look into their soul. The, the answer is the answer. If the word's on the page, that's what laws are. They're words on a page. If the word's on the page, do what you want them to do. Why would you not do it? I have to I have to point out, this is such a, a fantastic example of how Marxism was swapped out for cultural Marxism. Yeah. Because I've been I've been wondering for a long time. If you if you want to think about pure stereotypes, historical roles, the Republicans should want lots and lots. You know, the people who own the Republican Party, Republican donors, whatever power brokers should 
would want immigration because they're the big business guys. And the more immigration there is, the lower those wages at the bottom are. That's that's actually, you know, I, I feel like that's something that you don't want to say because it's such a knee-jerk talking point. But I did observe it in San Francisco. Uh, we had a tiny, like a 1% investment in a restaurant. And the restaurant went under because the guy could not find people to work those low-level jobs. It was in San Francisco. It's too expensive to live there. And I said to him, the guy who ran the restaurant, I said, oh, so if there were more immigrants, you could probably, if this place were awash in immigrants, you could pay less and keep the restaurant open. And he said, yeah. So I knew right then that there is some truth to that. Uh, So I can see why, you know, the stereotypical big business would want immigration. And now they're shifting. They don't want the chain so-called, which I guess is offensive immigration. They don't want the visa, uh, the visa lottery stuff they want, but they don't want to lower the immigration numbers. They want merit-based immigration, but merit, what does merit mean? People who can contribute, contribute what tech skills, because that's what the big tech has been lobbying for, for years. And if you switch immigration from the lower end to the higher end, you get your serving the uh, big tech business interests. But historically, the Democrats have been the champion of the worker, champion of the little guy, champion of the unions, which would object to immigrant labor competing with union wages. Basically, in their terms, it's importing slave labor. And they shouldn't they shouldn't support that from just traditional kind of uh, small L liberal viewpoints. But that is not a very powerful position it ends up in the West. Like Marxism didn't really, that that rising up of the masses and, and international action didn't really ever happen. It happened in Russia, but they just could not bring it to the West. And so they changed their tack from Marxism to cultural Marxism. So that being oppressed meant being a woman, being a minority, and, and identity and race was the thing that would make you rebel against society and usher in this what ultimately is still a redistribution of wealth, you know, it's still Marxism, but the driving force is identity. That's so I feel like that's this, it, this is the culmination of that. You see the Democrats moved away from being anti immigrant is like that. But, but I think it's that they all behind the scenes are all working for big tech and biz, big business and all that. And, and the driving down of wages is good for them. And of course, I think at the layer above that, it's about, uh, weakening communities in the source countries that where you drop bombs or screw up their economies and they come over here. And then instead of just putting them where they land, the way it used to be cities that could absorb it, like LA, New York, Miami, they actually have thousands of NGOs, non-governmental organizations who are tasked with placing communities of people from other countries into little rural communities in middle America um, uh, Brockton, Massachusetts is one that gets the Cape Verde Islanders. I think Somalians went to Minneapolis. I don't know, but those things are plans. Yeah, no, they they went, they shedded their communist colors because they couldn't use those overt techniques because it would turn people off. And they they did exactly like you said, cultural Marxism under the guise of pursuing other ends. You know, like you said, equality, women's rights. Um, and they would create front organizations. Absolutely. I mean, everything and that ties in with the MLK thing, because he 
You had the freedom movement, of course. You can't have a city bus that you pay for be segregated. It's ridiculous. And you can't have schools that you pay for be segregated. You just can't do any of that stuff. But that that does that mean that there should be a federal welfare program that redistributes wealth from South Dakota to Alabama? Like right. that's, that's not necessarily, you know, the logical conclusion or the the necessary solution to the problem. And that's what he was. That was his next step. George Lakoff, the guy who blocked me on Twitter yesterday, the cognitive linguist in his book. Don't think of an elephant, know your values and frame the debate, <laughs> the essential progressive guide for the issues that define our future in that book. He says that. Democrats need to do more strategic initiatives, which is what you just described, which is present legislation or something, and we only talk about the the moral issue, the humanitarian issue. And under the guise of this humanitarian issue, we're going to slide in all of these other consequences that are not the focus of it. So that people don't so that people don't realize it. He 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 says it's progressives' moral obligation to do this. Because he frames, he says, Republicans do it all the time. Republicans are evil, so it's our moral obligation to do it as well. That's subjectivism, and that is definitely something from the left that originated on the left. I mean, I don't defend Republicans as having principles because I don't think they do. But principles of the left allow for that. Principles of the right do not allow for that. Yeah, and this guy isn't just like a random dude who's just putting stuff out there. Progressives – Treat his word like it's gospel. They are slaves to his suggestions. And What's his points. origin? What's his backstory? He's a cognitive linguist. He's a professor at Berkeley. And you know who was a linguist professor at Berkeley? John McWhorter, who wrote Authentically Black. And uh, I think he was, oh, it's right here on my desk, John McWhorter. Um, and he comes at stuff from a different angle. But anyway, sorry. Just giving him a shout. He out. was the guy who was in the the linguistic wars against Noam Chomsky back in the day. It was those. He two. was against Noam Chomsky. Yes. The thing that made Chomsky famous was later proved wrong, but he's still famous. You know what I mean? They still right. act like he's yeah. a genius, and it's like, but he was completely wrong. He was only a genius because something totally unexpected was true, but ends up it wasn't true. So he's an idiot, right? Like right. theoretically, <laughs> he's also disinformation of the highest order. Yeah, yeah, and so and this guy too. Uh, this book, which was published, he he published one copy in two thousand four, and then an updated copy in two thousand fourteen. I'm reading this book, and if I have the news on in the background, I'm hearing what's in this book verbatim on every single issue. I mean, it is. And what's verbatim. funny is that he is telling these people how to use language to manipulate, and they don't see how manipulative his language is. They do them. not because yes, this is Those a, this is the whole. Those tweets that you tweeted right? me were shocking. His whole premise of the book is progressives are nurturant, they are empathetic, they care about children, they want to do what's right. Republicans, on the other hand, are immoral, they're evil, they're racist, and they're unempathetic, especially towards children. And their their policies, their values could destroy the world. It's I mean, so that, ridiculous to paint half the population as that. Think of all the philanthropists that are Republican, you know? He Although, does it well. Like he's very good at what he does, and that's, but that's why when the he thing tweets about something, even being a Democrat, like I, it it took me a while to like look outside my window and be like, you know, I could not tell by the behavior of these people when they come over my house at a barbecue, their behavior, not their words, but their behavior. I could not tell if they were Democrats or Republicans. Some people are polite. Some people are rude. Some people are good drivers. Some people are good parents. You know, and I could not by that alone 
you know, classify people as good or evil depending on their political party. You know what I mean? It's not valid. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he's very um, insistent that his worldview is the correct worldview and that everything conservatism, including libertarians, he, he lumps libertarians. Oh, I hate libertarians yeah. because libertarians are morally consistent. Are, We're not warmongers or anything. People literally like real hardcore liberals – are so contemptuous towards me because we're the biggest threat because we actually peel people off of their group because we are okay with uh, personal choices. You know what I mean? Civil liberties, which they act right. like they own, but they don't. I encourage listeners to follow him at George Lakoff on Twitter <laughs> or go to his Facebook page after Trump was elected. To troll started... him? No, just to, to look at the talking points. If you want to get the talking tomorrow's talking points today, then all you got to do is go go to his Twitter page or his Facebook page, and he tweets how the issue should be framed. And then Alyssa Milano will tweet it to her millions of followers. The Indivisible groups will retweet it to we their should, millions of followers. We should include them in our TWIP feature on our website. That's a good idea. I, I was thinking about putting some of his tweets um, in a post, and I'll so do that later today. I, I can't. I have to look at him from when I'm not logged in because he blocked me yesterday. <laughs> I'll try to help. I every I try every day, but it's like more like every other day. I try to put all like my original thoughts. Like if I have a tweet of a headline and I have the interpretation of it and I tweet about it, I'm taking those isolated tweets and putting them in a blog post so that people who don't follow follow Twitter or don't want to like sort through different kinds of tweets if they just want, okay, what's her opinion on like whatever the top five stories of the day? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I put I've um, been posting that on propagandareportdaily.com. I call it a tweep, twip for Twitter trip. And maybe if you send yes. me some of the George Lakoff stuff, I can include that and people can just see where it's headed. Not a lot of them, just two or three. And uh and you can just get a it's actually a very good little feature because it takes you like two minutes to read it and uh makes it easy to catch up on Twitter. Not just on Twitter, but on like one line about every single you know, about the top headlines in the news instead of having to read a blog post or listen to something. It's like, oh, yeah, that's what that's about. Yeah, so a quick summary. I like that feature. I like it too. All right. To kind of wrap up my perspective on the whole DACA thing, I, I think for the rest of the year, you're going to see the exact same thing going on that happened with the Dreamer deal. You're not going to see any compromises happen unless they're absolutely necessary. You're not going to see anything happen that undermines that racist, evil image of Trump that's been created. So anything that looks like it's going to happen, it's going to get blown up by some... Infrastructure will happen. Infrastructure is going to happen. No, just like the tax thing. It's about the money. It's about the cronies. Everybody's in on it. This stuff that involves people's lives and they can use it as a tool. Yeah, but when they're talking about Trump giving them cover for stuff that... uh, a conservative Republican might get flack for, they're going to get it done. I I should clarify. It it might happen, but if it does, it's not going to be a major story. It's not going to be put in people's minds. It's going to happen slyly. Anything that's compromising that would actually help Democrats is not going to be a major story, or it's going to be framed as the only reason we got it done is because we had to overcome this evil racist. It'll never be framed as, yeah, the president worked with us to create this program that's going to help everybody. That will never be the conclusion to any successful negotiation. Yeah, I can see that. I also think 
that he plays into it. So oh, he, yeah, absolutely. he creates the dialectic and it continues to support my view that his his presidency is not about changing the trajectory of the arrow of state, but it's rather pulling the arrow back and letting it fly even further than it could have flown under Hillary because you neutralize the resistance yeah. when you control it. And I think, I'm not saying it's for sure, but the nothing so far has proven that. Trump you mean the bad. other, you mean your resistance, not the. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. The real reason, the resistance to the state, not the people who are fi- you know, fighting for bigger government. That's not the resistance. They can call it the resistance, but it's not the resistance. It's the problem. It's the, it's, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? How is it the resistance if it is? They're saying they're the resistance to Trump, but in reality, they are what has been the regime since LBJ and they will, you know, they're going to get it back. And Well, they followed another one of Lakoff's suggestions in his book, and that is to co-opt the language of the other party and make it their own. Yes, that that's a kind of thing that we've seen for so long, you know, like queer. Right. Wasn't that like a big triumph to. Which is fine if you want to neutralize language that way and it's hurtful, I'm all for it. But you can see that they did. Or liberals, as a libertarian, my origin is in liberty, classical liberalism. So the liberals took that over. It's that same old hijacking the word freedom to mean the opposite. Yeah, just like George Lakoff instructs them to do. Yesterday, and you saw this, Lakoff tweets out a stream of tweets that – it's just pure propaganda about immigration, about the dreamers. I mean, some of the most over-the-top propaganda you're going to see, and it's getting retweeted by Alyssa Milano, by all the indivisible groups, by other celebrities that worship everything that Lakoff says. And all I did was comment on the thread saying, you are incredibly deceptive. Bam, instantly blocked. And then his followers started tweeting at me, accusing me of being a Russian bot. <laughs> yes, because you have an opposing viewpoint. Right. I mean, they don't even know what my viewpoint was because all I said was you're incredibly deceptive, which you would probably in a conversation privately say thank you. Yeah, of course. That's the name of the game. I mean, that is the name of the game. That's what he's saying. He's saying this is how you manipulate people. Uh to work for you without knowing your real motives. Yeah, yeah, you know? that's exactly that, that's this yeah. whole thing. Hey, can I read yeah, a headline exactly. that just came across the wire, as it were? President Trump blew up Republican strategies to keep the government open past Friday when on Thursday morning he said a long term extension of the popular children's health insurance program should not be part of a stopgap spending bill pending before the House. You know why? Why? Because he hates children. You could hear people in the press room. One of them was Jim Acosta. You could hear him and some other lady in the press briefing room the other day just screaming after he had already answered. Trump already answered them going, do you only want white people from Norway to come in? And and, at one point Trump said, no, I want everybody. And then they just keep screaming the same thing. Are you a racist? Do you only want white people from Norway? And, of course, Trump eventually – he made Acosta leave, which is exactly what Jim Acosta wants because that's what his – that's what all of his fame 
in journalism has been built on is him saying outrageous things and getting in fights with Trump. Well, that's what the indivisible movement that you were talking about a year yeah, ago. Right. Yeah. Said like, don't don't give up the mic, push people, get them to push you, get them ask to impossible push you. questions. They teach them. I listened to yeah. a training session where they teach them to ask impossible questions. Yeah, do you still be your wife? Yeah, like exactly. So the fake news awards shifting gears. Yep. We're kind of anticlimactic. I don't know if you saw. You, actually, you did. You I, tweeted I, at me. Well, I figured you saw that. And whether they were successful or not, the headline was going to be the fake news awards are a flop. I didn't watch them or whatever. <laughs> I don't know if they were televised. Well, but uh, did you think they were a flop? No, I. I, I it depends how we um, – did you I don't think them? that they were a flop because Trump's uh, followers, Trump's you know enthusiasts, they they loved. He, you know, he basically gave CNN like four out of seven awards, and they pointed to like six or seven examples that I can't remember them off the top of my head, but they weren't anything. It wasn't like a grand ceremony; it was just a publishing of a link. And then progressives, actually, I don't know if they held a competing award ceremony called the oppressor awards where they gave trump a lifetime achievement award for being a an oppressor of like minorities or something like that but um which i'm going to get to that again uh, here in a second uh but the 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 framing of this for for liberals was John McCain actually wrote an article. His article parroted exactly what Lakoff tweeted about the same issue, and then Jeff Blake got up and spoke to Congress, and he parroted what McCain wrote and what Lakoff tweeted about, and the whole thing was that all of the fighting, all of the calling fake news, Trump calling fake news is totalitarian. It's like Stalin. It's um, – it's, we need, Trump needs to stop because he is enabling – dictators around the world to oppress journalists oh i heard something about the worldwide impact like other leaders i was totally baffled by it what yeah what what was yeah if john mccain lake off and jeff blake all consistent and anytime i heard anybody else speak about it on television it was all consistent trump's oppressing the media or he's he's threatening the media by calling them fake news, and by doing this, he's showing the world, he's showing dictators in the world who have followed in his footsteps that they can just call things fake news, they can jail reporters, they can kill reporters, and they can oppress their people. And Trump is enabling dictators around the world by calling CNN fake news. That, that was essentially the message. Okay, but these guys are calling actual journalism fake news and championing CNN, which is fake news. Right. Yeah, it's backwards. You know, they're calling for censorship right now. They're acting like it's him. You know, they're di- diverting. They're yes. just doing that same opposite tactic that's, uh, you know, a signature of their approach. They're just calling, telling, saying that he's doing what they, what in fact they are doing. That's exactly what it is. They're saying the mainstream media is you need to trust them and you cannot let the president. And they're going to say they need legal protections. So the president, well, he did say, I'll revoke their licenses. So he did threaten policy action, but they're going to use policy action to control the press. There was a document published by a senator from the Intelligence Committee that outlined some policy prescriptions about how to stop it. So 
that's not the only thing. There's a lot of people who've been calling for solutions to fake news. Yeah, Facebook's been trying all sorts of things, YouTube, Google. Everybody's trying to fix fake news with either technology or by trying to implement some sort of news literacy program for adults and for and for children. And I started looking at some of these efforts, and I, I discovered that they all linked back to one overarching organization that is called First Draft News. Now, First Draft News is an organization that's dedicated to fighting fake news, to informing citizens around the world about how they can better avoid fake news. They've created guides on how to how to stop fake news. They've made like 40 suggestions for people all across the for governments, for media, for individuals, for educators all around the world to implement as a way of stopping fake news. And all of those suggestions include what a common set of facts. That's what I'm trying to say. Remember Obama was talking about a common set of facts. We have to have a common set of facts. Yeah, but that's what journalism is all about. You know what I mean? Finding the facts. Yeah, but what they mean, what Obama means by a common set of facts is the mainstream media is centralized control of reality. No alternative sources that compete with the reality that they convey through the mainstream media. That's what they mean by common set of facts. Yeah. Jeff Flake, Lakoff, McCain all said the same thing basically is we need the common set of facts so that people can get the truth. And this first draft news – and Facebook are doing the same thing. Everything they're doing is designed to help people get this common set of facts so that they can get to the truth. And they're testing all kinds of technology, web browsers, applications, school curriculum that they can use to try and achieve this, to try and fight fake news and create a common set of facts that they can deliver to us as truth, a reality that they've created. But the problem is that the people creating this reality aren't trying to create a reality that best represents the truth, they're going to create a reality that best serves their interest. That's why it becomes really interesting to look over the hundred or so businesses, organizations, academic institutions that are all part of this first draft news. And more importantly, look at who's funding it. Now, some of the groups that are part of it are Facebook, YouTube, Google. Google is the group that actually originally founded it. And A lot of people might not know this, but Google offered Hillary Clinton the opportunity to use their plane, the Google plane, during her campaign. They offered to help her come up with her talking points during the camp. They worked closely with Hillary Clinton's campaign. Google did and some of their top top execs, and they also established this first draft news thing. AP, Reuters, CNN, every single progressive outlet in America and around the world, the BBC that you can think of, is a part of this worldwide coalition. This organization is funded, among a few others, by the Ford Foundation and by the Open Society Foundation, George Soros's Open Society Foundation. Well, I'll tell you, I absolutely recognized that there was a systematic effort to put that first in um, the schools because my daughter is trying to transfer schools right now and you have to apply. Some of these schools are like fancy schools and they only take people in, you know, certain grade points. So they have seminars or like open houses and stuff. And in every single one of them, 
uh, information assessment, as I call it, that nobody called it that, but information assessment was a priority. In one of the schools, they had us have mini classes, sit in on classes that the teachers designed for us. And the first one that I sat in on in this one school was the information assessment. <clears throat> and her conclusion, what, what she was saying the whole entire class was to lead us to this one conclusion. And her conclusion was authority is the only real way to verify news. And in the batting back and forth of our discussion, we were, she was just taking examples. She's like, how do you know what a good restaurant is? And some of the examples of like what resources you would use came up. And one was uh, a whatever, um, New York Times food review a critic. And another thing was a Yelp reviewer. And she said, I am just putting Yelp up here as an example of what is not a good source, that the New York Times critic has social standing. <laughs> and uh, and that's and that person, and I said, I, of course, said, but Yelp reviewers, like they get up to the top, the more they review and think about how accurate it is. I said, I bet you get, you've had a better experience at, at, restaurants that were widely in aggregate reviewed positively by Yelp than the one guy at the New York times. And she was just like, would have none of that. But another school, uh, the student, a student was speaking. She said her favorite club is the faculty led club called, um, I, I don't know what it was, Hoaxbusters or something, but it was just about, about keeping, about learning how to debunk conspiracy theories. Every single school had a program like this and we're bragging about it to us. And I was like, why is this the number one thing you're worried about right now? Right. And I guarantee you that their programs came from one of the news literacy organizations that First Draft News and George Soros have enlisted to spread this this curriculum around the world. Yeah, they were all – even the religious school was in, was called itself an independent school. And there must be a consortium of independent schools where they kind of get their newsletter and it tells them what's on on the top of the agenda. That's kind of scary to think that these extreme progressives are trying to control the curriculum. They're not trying to control it. They do control right. it. Yeah, that's why we got to teach kids outside of the education system to keep asking questions and you know trying to overcome their own bias because they're not going to teach them that within the education system. They're going to give them a false confidence. They're going to show them all this fake news stuff, these techniques that they can test on a multiple choice test, and they'll pass the test and they'll feel like they know it and they'll grow up thinking they know what fake news is, but in reality – they don't have a clue what it is. They're blind to what actual fake news is and making them completely vulnerable and slaves to it. I said, my daughter today, I said to her, YouTube hired 10,000 censors to make sure they control what we see. I said, I didn't hear anyone talk about vulgarity. She said, oh, but that's good. They'll take the violence and sex and vulgarity and stuff off. I said, I never heard anyone talk about any of those things. Just political thoughts. She said, well, it's good that they're keeping it safe for kids. And I said, she's very mature. And I said, but what if you disagree with them? I said, what if she totally disagrees with me about everything? I love her to death, but she just doesn't. She It upsets her. She's like, it's not. People would make fun of me if I said this stuff. You said, I said, I'm fine. I don't care. And uh, But I said, what if they decided to screen out everything that you 
think is true and only put in everything that I think is true. Like, what if I had a job as a screener? She's like, well, then you can just go somewhere else. I mean, they own YouTube, right? They own it. So they should be able to do what they think is best. I said, well, but what if they... What if there can't be another YouTube because of whatever, CISA or PIPA or whatever, like some law that makes the uh, the uh, the requirements, the licensing requirements or the, the, the information sharing requirements or whatever, the requirements so stringent or that the government was behind the technology that uh, that established this thing as as a basically a monopolist, like that it's impossible for other people to compete. It's impossible for you to get another viewpoint. And when these guys come down on the content and you can't go anywhere else, what are you going to do? And she's just like, I think they'll do what's best. I'm like, seriously? <laughs> I raised this child? I love her to death. She's awesome. But uh, I, she's totally... And she says to me, she's like, there are videos about if I said stuff that you say, I would, I'm crazy. And I'm like, okay. Oh my gosh. I have to play you a clip. If somebody asked Jim Acosta a question at this American Press Institute thing they did last night where they had the, it was supposed to be the Press Freedom Awards, but they did this little spoof on Trump where they had the Press Oppressor Awards. But Jim Acosta, who thought he was in friendly company, was asked a question. Uh, here, I'll ju- I'll just play it for you. I have it here on my phone. It's it goes to right to what you're saying right there about people who have different views just getting shamed. Hi, uh, Carl Golovin, uh, retired special agent, U.S. Customs Service, uh, 9/11 responder, domain reference, an idea lives on. Okay, Carl, I, uh, please get to a question. An idea yeah. lives on. Dot net. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Polisinski, thank you for being patient, though you've heard me ask questions before. No one else has, so thank you for your patience. Uh, I've previously addressed a question to Jeff Zucker, John King, Wolf Blitzer, and uh, Jake Tapper, provided documentation to each of them from AE911truth.org that the official story of 9-11 is not true. My question for you, Mr. Acosta, if the official story of 9-11 is not true, isn't that the biggest story there is? And if CNN will not report the biggest story there is, isn't everything else reporting just nonsense and fake news? Uh, I, How do you? Yeah. <sighs> Go ahead. Please. I, I would just say that Answer I, I would just say that uh, that if you are uh, putting out uh, the story that uh, terrorists uh, did not hijack airplanes and fly them into the World Trade Center on 9/11. And you, sir, are you, sir, are you, sir, are bringing to part? us the biggest fake news of all? What's the fake okay? part? You're a liar. You hear that? How many people clapped? How big was that room? Were more people clapping? Yes, more people were clapping than there was people who were kind of awkward. It wasn't like a rousing standing ovation. But most people were clapping. Yes. American Press Institute, also funded by George Soros. So this was a very left leaning event that they were having. It was it was a Trump hate fest, is what it was. And this guy got up, and he was calm, and he obviously went there because he wanted to ask that question to get his website out or whatever. But he asked a legitimate question. I mean they've talked about the missing 28 pages or whatever, and Acosta puts words in his mouth. The guy didn't say that planes didn't go into the building. He puts words in his mouth and calls calls a 9-11 first responder fake news. Well, he certainly didn't ask the guy for the evidence. 
Oh, yeah. He wasn't interested in that. You know what I'm saying? Like, why do you say, well, what's your evidence? That's what I do. When Flat Earth Mark called me, I asked him what his evidence was. Right. Acosta's worried that the guy might actually direct people to the evidence. So of course. He well, he did say uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 truth. So I have here some of the 34 recommendations for fighting fake news that were published by the Soros-backed First Draft News. The document is titled Information Disorder Towards an Interdisciplinary Framework for Research and Policymaking. Among other things, they prescribe 34 solutions for stopping fake news. I'll give you a couple of them here. All right, what can technology companies do? One, they can create an international advisory council to monitor, you know, basically the internet. Right. You know, did you see, I think Ricky Bobby tweeted at us that Facebook thing is like 12 minutes of that guy, the, like one of the first Facebook employees, whatever, who now owns like something like the Golden State Warriors, obviously a billionaire. He, uh, he's been doing the tour. We've talked about it where I feel guilty because Facebook is bad, blah, blah, blah. And then like 13 minutes into this montage, he says, frankly, we have to do something about it. And that starts with government. Denzel Washington was in one of the clips and he said, we're talking about information overload. Like that's what's destroying our kids, information overload. They're talking about the dopamine effect, all that. Because as you know, I've been investigating it because I worry about my kids using so much digital stuff. I'll have to talk. I'm going to talk about it on my next WSB show. These talking points are universal. They have a very unified message worldwide that they're delivering in order to take charge of fake news, so to speak. But fake news, just so you know, this is, I'll give you a little foreshadowing on my, for my show on Saturday, that four years ago, almost to the day, I did a show on WSB talking about how I believe the internet was a limited hangout it was created by the Defense Department. We know that. And that it had all this surveillance. It was there to get us to all register and get used to this in our lives, whatever. And that it would be clawed back. They were going to claw it back. I didn't know how. Some of it was the CISA and the PIPA stuff, those uh, surveillance and censorship acts that were that met so much resistance. I think CISA in some form or another did get passed, but... The, these comprehensive legislation bills, whatever, it, they met a lot of resistance. And so what's happened since then, I mean, this was really quite the culmination, and I absolutely predicted it. But what's happened since then is they've taken a multi-pronged approach. One is online radicalization. One is to stop fake news. One is to stop political influence, which is what the press is all about. One is to save the children. One is to keep bullying from happening. <laughs> One is to stop hoaxes because hoaxes kill. I mean, I even think the Tide Pod challenge that's killing people is, yeah. is being used to censor. So how are they clawing back the internet? They're doing it by promoting all of these fear tactics and even real, probably real injuries. Uh, but ultimately they all, they're all doing it. They're doing it to get, uh, to get policies in place that control the internet. And and here I've got to say this, that I just gave my kids phones for the first time. I, and they're just, my daughter is so immersed in social media. My son is still so hooked on games. 
and and my son who has down syndrome it is just gets like i had to take his little laptop away just because the youtube videos he was watching were too vulgar too violent and he gets we call it hulking out he freaks out when you take it away from him and i just was shocked at how horrible this stuff is for kids i mean shocked so uh I just couldn't believe that, you know, I, I searched through all my Apple stuff. Is there a button I can push to just like delete all this stuff or bar it? Like there's like the nanny stuff is so hard to implement. And I, I just could not believe that that this was happening to our kids and like nobody was stopping it. And now, so when all these articles this week have been talking about um, iPhone and Apple and Facebook and even Amazon, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said Amazon's her child her two-year-old ordered something from Amazon, you know, this must be stopped that, that they knew. And they said, see, all these Facebook guys said, I knew I was setting it up to have total addiction. I knew I was setting up for dopamine. I knew I was setting up to infiltrate the market, to get everybody to sign up, even people who objected to it. I knew I was targeting kids. I knew it. And the implication is that it was all for the bottom line for the profits. But in reality, knowing the deep ties between Facebook and Google and uh, the Defense Department, for example, you, yeah, it's very easy to uh, take one tiny step and say, "Yeah, you were doing all this stuff, but it wasn't for the bottom line. Uh, it was to create a crisis that would then be the launching off point to claw back the internet, which you released as a limited hangout, which served great purpose, and now." We're really, you know, it was going to get out there eventually anyway. And now they're, they have many, many reasons that they're using to justify total control of the internet and, and say for the children is a big one. Right. Let me read off, just read off a list of these to you because you'll have, you'll want to say something about them because they all go into what you're just saying there of these suggestions that first draft news has recommended. Agree on policies of strategic silence. News organizations should work on working together to avoid mal and disinformation with strategic silence. What does that mean? Don't cover 9-11? Yes, that's what it means. This is the exact same thing that the U.S. government did during World War I. They asked the media to remain strategically silent. There's a book written about it. I have to tell you this. Let me let me read these off real quick because okay. you're going to have something to say about all of these. Okay. Finance public service media and local and local news media outlets. So take control of local news media outlets. Tell stories about the real threat of information disorder worldwide. Work internationally to create a standard news literacy curriculum. Internationally oh. to create a standard. Wow. News literacy. There's like 34 of these. I'll link the document. Oh, I have to have it. I want to talk about it on my show on Saturday and hear what people have to say. But I have to tell you something. Let me hear it. Do you have you ever heard the speech of JFK that he talks about the worldwide conspiracy? Yes. Okay. It was to the press club. Yes. Speech was to the press club. What do you what do you think that speech was about? It wasn't about what people think it's about. I don't Correct. think he was trying to expose the worldwide conspiracy, was he? It was the exact opposite of what people say it was. He said there's a worldwide conspiracy, and I think it's pretty clear he's talking about communism. And he was, for all intents and purposes, I think, anti-communist, which is why RFK had MLK's phone tapped. Uh, 
that he said, there is this conspiracy. So, and we really need a press that, that, you know, looks underneath every rock and, and explores every shadow. However, in our efforts to fight this worldwide conspiracy, we in government would appreciate if you guys just kept your mouth shut when we asked you to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what Bernays and them asked media to do during World War I. But people take that speech as if JFK was telling the world about secret societies, and he wasn't. He was asking the press to help them in the fight against communism by uh, not saying anything. Which, by the way, there's a movie out right now uh, called The Post about the Washington Post, and it's it doesn't – about Catherine Graham, who was deeply – involved in Operation Mockingbird, which was control of the press. And they don't even talk about that. They talk about how she was, you know, a crusader for truth. Or, I don't know. I don't know. Propaganda piece and the timing of it, too. It, it's Oh, it, of course. It's and it's such fake news. The movie is fake news and the post is fake news. And was Oh, my gosh. Moment. I saw an article yesterday that said that they're going to make – a TV show, a TV series based on Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury, even though it's a total fiction. And if you read the book, he opens the book by basically saying he can't verify anything. <laughs> and they're going to create a TV show that people are going to interpret as real. <sighs> it's crazy. So to sum up real quick, and then I have one more point, that, which I found really, really interesting about First Draft News, the, the timing of its creation. But basically, the worldwide effort to fight fake news and to educate the world's children about how to protect themselves from fake news is funded by Soros and those like him for the purpose of controlling the internet, controlling the media, and dumbing down the next generation, making them completely vulnerable and blind to actual propaganda. That, that's, that's the effort that's going on here. What's interesting to me about First Draft News is – it originally came into existence on June 18th, 2015. Do you know what happened on June 16th, 2015? Hold on. Let me think about it. Kate's not, no, Trump's inauguration. So he launched his no, campaign. 2015, 2015. Yes, 2015 that's is when Trump launched his. Right. 2015, June 16th, Trump launches his campaign. Right. 2008 or uh, 2015, June 18th, first draft news comes into existence. There's another interesting fact surrounding them. They were started initially by Google, Google Labs, and like I told you earlier, Google was helping Hillary in her campaign. They had her big one of her biggest donors was one of the executives that was that was working with Google at the time. They offered Eric their airplane. Schmidt? Do what? Was it Eric Schmidt? Eric Schmidt Actually, was the, that, that might be who it was. Yeah, he was jump. he was the head of Google and he was a huge Hillary supporter and he was definitely, I thought, gonna be in her cabinet. Yeah, it, it might have been him. I, I can't remember this. Yeah, I'm pretty name. sure. On September twenty-third, twenty sixteen, the th that was the first time now th now the word fake news, we've heard that word before throughout history, but the modern iteration, this modern meme can be traced back to September, I think it was either 23rd or 26th of 2016, and it can be traced back to, to who? 
Uh, Who do you think? Who started it. fake news September 23rd, 2016? Yeah. Um, hold on. It was right around then, right around then, that I wrote an article saying, teeing it up for the censorship president. Vern Jordan uh, talked about how we need big tech to censor the news. Obama had just given a speech saying there should be a truthiness test. Uh, Melania had just said that bullying needed to be stopped on the internet. Who started fake news? Uh, I really feel like I want to answer that question right. And you've had a lot of clues throughout the course of the show. Uh, I mean, I could say it's Trump, but it can't be that obvious, right? That's not what you're looking for. No, it's not Trump. Okay. I've had a lot of clues and that guy who blocked you, Lackoff. Last off, I don't know if he's linked to if he's linked to the um, origin of it. That's something that I that I should look into. In fact, I'll do that. But no, that is not Acosta. No, you want me to tell you? Come on, I guess so. First draft news. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, all right. I was looking for a person. Yeah, it was, it, was the first, it was the first draft news network. They they you announced know, their they announced their world coalition and their their partners Twitter, Facebook, and their fight against fake news. And that was the first time that it would like you can even check it. Like I verified what she was saying by doing uh you can do a Google search on how often words have been used okay. throughout a timeline. And and on that date, on that date that it they first did more. it. It, yeah. it, it it just spikes and it goes completely up the graph. Okay. Of, of but the I will say, you have to say that's the day they hijacked the term, the way resistance was hijacked and liberalism was hijacked because John Rappaport, who does that, uh, no more fake right. news. Yeah, I, I, I was saying fake news long before that, but I understand what you're saying. They, they made it a, a PR effort, a propaganda. Uh, yeah, exactly. Public and, relations and, but, effort. Very effective, and obviously everybody bought in, and you know what they say about Google. Like if they want it to happen, they can decide who's president. They can decide. And I, I think they did search. decide because the power of the reaction to Trump is so much greater than would have been the power of Hillary under fire. That could be true. Let, let me, let me point out one more thing about that search term. I did a controlled search before – that date and there's nothing absolutely nothing uh, with the term fake news i know that that guy had that website but i mean and i know the term had been used before they didn't like just invent it out of thin air but like you can't find anything calling anything fake news it's you know what our our the logo i put on our little business cards and is on our our blog which started before that because the news is not reality. So, yeah. We right. No, I know news. that. Uh, the yeah, concept yeah, I agree is with there. You. But I mean that exact yeah. term. I and that's what, what Lackoff talks about. That exact term, like you said, was created by, by a propaganda PR organization. They invested a lot of money, and there's a conscious effort to repeat it over. Lackoff yeah. even Lackoff tells them to do this. They say so to embed powerful. it in people's unconscious, you repeat it over and over and over and over and over again until they unconsciously think of it. And you know, my mother, when you tell her, I don't know what it was about Trump, uh, like some negative report, that's just fake news. <laughs> so he's got her saying, you know, knee jerking. But that's right. what I do. And anyway, I used to do that with Bush, like W, who I was not a fan of, but 
when the news just relentlessly criticized every single thing he said or did, even while he was passing legislation, signing legislation to ban light bulbs, you know, like you want that? The Republicans really want that from a president? I was still like, ah, they just, I always gave him the benefit of the doubt because it seemed like they just criticized him knee jerk. Right. Yeah. It's very powerful. The reaction it calls. I I just, to me, I just found it fascinating that the organization that evidence suggests launched the modern iteration of the fake news meme is also the worldwide coalition funded by George Soros. that happens to be leading the fight against fake news. Right. To me, that's, that's problem reaction solution. That's the whole that's yes, the whole yeah. – that's the thing we talk about. They created the problem. They made it – they articulated it for the public. They scared the public. Yeah, perfect dialectic, yeah. Yeah, and that to me is just one of the prongs that they're using to control the internet totally. That's what they're using to control the news. Right. The social media stuff is another way to control the information. Yeah. You know, The information superhighway is a two-way street. It's surveillance and censorship. You know what I mean? Information is power. They have to, they they want all your information because that gives them power, but they don't want you to actually have oh, yeah, any information, yeah. which is why they have to claw it back. But you would never have registered in the first place if it was like Pravda. You know, if the only thing you got on the internet was Pravda, you know, just to, or the equivalence of Pravda, it would be, that? Pravda was the state-owned media agency of Russia. Oh, okay. Pravda was the official... And and I grew up laughing. I was like, how would people believe anything that comes out of the government-owned press? And my father would be like, I don't know. And then I realized that the BBC had been established by what was the British War Department. You know, it was it was simply military propaganda. That was the purpose of it. It's a government. It's the government owns the media in England, yeah. and they make it they make it plausible. Like their their stuff actually has a little more of the limited hangout effect. Because they they want you to think that it really is separate, like um, uh, Curtis, Adam Curtis, I think, made the Century of the Self, and he made um, that nightmares thing about Al Qaeda being basically a creation. Yeah, that came out of the BBC, so you believe in it, but it's yeah. You know, it's there just so you believe in it. Anyway. Another one of the suggestions from that document I was reading was to basically collect metadata from all the social networks so you can understand the patterns and habits of those who disseminate fake news, which is essentially just giving all the personal information to an international coalition. Yeah. I mean, and they're saying that they're using it for purposes of this is what the Facebook guys were saying that that we use psychological methods to get you to click more, spend more time on Facebook. Like this whole thing is a psychological apparatus. And again, I say yes, you can say that it's for it's simply for the bottom line, but surely there are other applications of that kind of psychological experiment which they admit to. Yeah, and now they're trying to make it seem like fake news is having this moral dilemma. Not fake news, Facebook. Even I'm saying it unconsciously that Facebook is having this moral dilemma, and they're trying to make the world a better place. So Zuckerberg is changing up all their formats and stuff, and and that's how all these websites are talking about it. But that's not what they're doing. 
They're not what trying to make it. They're trying to better control local news sources. Yeah, because to me, like at first, they absolutely got to me. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm having this exact crisis in my house right now. Like, I just can't. My kids don't go on Facebook, but the equivalent, I'm like, it's terrible. It's really it's really heart wrenching. And I've got to rein it in and I'm going to. But I just couldn't. It's like it's such a drug. It's really an addiction. And so when they were talking like that, I was like, these guys are up to something, but they are right. You know, and then. When I saw what they were doing, one of the things they're doing is trying to get everything to be local instead of basically national or you're talking to people you don't know, which yeah. to me is, is the most politically powerful thing social media right. does. I mean, that's how it supposedly started the Arab Spring was that you could reach out to millions of like-minded people at once. And they're literally intentionally reining that in making that more difficult. They're attacking local news. Fox is buying Sinclair, by the way. We talked about that. Yeah. So local news people trust more. And I do like I'm on WSB. I'm on locally. If I were syndicated, my guess is I could never talk about the stuff I talk about. This local news doesn't hurt anybody. People are, uh, you know, you just get, I just don't think they care that much because you don't have that like big, big impact. That's how they get into the rural rural areas too, oh, like you were talking they're about. They're so attacking the rural areas. Um. Anyway, yeah, it's very upsetting. I'm going to talk about it on Saturday. It's it's quite an operation these con artists got going. It's a military operation, in my opinion. If you look, I mean, just I was just looking at Uber. I was like, okay, Uber came out of nowhere. It displaced taxis, which was the strongest lobby in any city. This had some backing. And I, I, I was so overwhelmed by the references to how these how the tech um comes out of contests and grants and incubators run by DARPA uh, or the CIA or um various government or military institutions, how they're all interconnected, how they pick winners, who, you know, that I just didn't even, it comes out of actual military research projects they do on their own out in the field, like driverless car sensors and um, just so much technology comes out of that stuff, the internet, for example, that it was crystal clear to me that they're, this is a huge undertaking that's been going, that's been kind of in the works for decades. Bigniv Brzezinski wrote about it in 1972. So obviously it's kind of a long-term plan. And I just, I don't think that Zuckerberg is out there controlling the world. It's just not plausible to me. He'd have gotten Kalanick by now if he was, if he was going rogue. Yeah. You know, oh, and I found something, you know, Kalanick is the Uber guy. On the, he was absolutely riding high. Everybody was like, he's a huge jerk, but he was still riding high, riding high. And I, I was determined to figure out why they took him out. And they were trying to get him out, and he wouldn't go, and he wouldn't go. And then and he has no wife, no kids, and his parents were in a totally mysterious car, uh, boating accident in a, a lake they lived on for 12 years. On a serene day, the mother died. Father survived, but then Kalanick stepped down the next day. They finally got him to leave, and I, I was determined to figure it out. And the only thing I could come up with was an article right before it started coming down for him that said Uber refused to cooperate with government spy agencies trying to understand their data or something like that. It was just yeah. one or two articles. Did you see that? 
No, I remember you telling me about yeah, the Yeah, I told accident. you about it. And it just, it, that's it. He refused to do it. Normally, I would read an article like that and say, yeah, yeah, sure. But then he disappeared. So, <laughs> you know, he's out. And, uh, and I think that happens. You know, when you think about Nixon and Ford and Reagan and even JFK, I mean, these guys weren't outsiders, upstarts. They were people who had big enough egos to want to do well. Gerald Ford's VP was Nelson Rockefeller. So regardless of who he was or how he was, my guess is they were going to take a couple of shots at him. But like Nixon, really an inside guy. But when they, or JFK, when they start getting ideas of their own, if they can't be controlled, they got to go. That's why you have, you know, the real face jobs are the ones who last, not the guys right. who have that, the, enough of an ego to know you need a big ego to be uh, lazy and overconfident, but you need a really big ego to think you can take take on the the guys who put you in the place in the first place. I know you had something you wanted to say about oh, the MLK, MLK thing. Yeah, actually, that segues right into it, the Rockefeller thing. If people listen to the WSB show I did on Martin Luther King Day, which we will have in our propaganda report, daily.com feed, you're going to find it soon, right around this date. Uh, I talked about the book by William Pepper, Orders to Kill, about who really killed Martin Luther King. James Earl Ray pled guilty uh, because of very bad advice from a lawyer who was really not on his side. He died in jail, and the King family wanted to get him a proper trial because they didn't believe he did it. They thought there was a conspiracy. Pepper... uh, didn't get him a new trial, but he did get a civil trial against a guy named Lloyd Jowers, who was part of the conspiracy. They held it in a court of law. Jowers lost, and he basically told all. Now, this is a huge expose. I mean, I'm sure many people know about it, but if you dig into it a little bit, it's crystal clear there was a conspiracy to murder MLK. And so then you have to ask why. If it wasn't just a racist lone nut, why? Why did he do it? And Pepper, so Pepper now is the guy who you trust because he was the lawyer for James Earl Ray. He is a lawyer for the King family. He won the civil suit. He exposed most of it as much as he could. And then, but one thing he he kept saying was, I met Martin Luther King in 1967 after I published a photo piece in Ramparts magazine of children affected by the Vietnam War. King saw my pictures openly wept, called for me, and at that moment made the decision to merge the freedom movement, his civil rights movement, with the peace movement, the anti-Vietnam movement. And uh, he was planning a sit-in, a poor person's sit-in, right um, in the spring. He was killed in April. So that didn't happen yet. And, And you have to ask, I asked the question, why was he killed? Was it civil rights? Was it the anti-war stuff? But here was the thing. That poor person's march was, was there was a fundraiser at Harry Belafonte's house for that. Nelson Rockefeller was there. Stephen Rockefeller, who I don't know who that is. Uh, FDR III was there. So all the people behind the scenes. And those guys, the, the Rockefellers were known communist support, sympathizers. Like they were in China. They were in Russia. They were a part of this 
you know, communism, not as communism, but communism as a way to just suck all the money and power up to the top by controlling the governments that can do that. So they were all in on that. Then you got to ask, so then who was it on the other side of that? Who was it that actually killed MLK? Was it the guys who were the established power and didn't want to give the power up? Uh, or was it even deeper? Because I, I actually like just thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And I, I thought he, he was probably built up for the purpose of being knocked down like that, that the trauma of his death was what let so many people be ripe for the suggestibility that you've talked about being emotional nakedness. And then you give them the suggestibility which is the exact same thing that happened with JFK. And then I realized that Joe Atwill on Powers and Principalities said that. He thought JFK was set up, that Camelot was set up just to be knocked down for the trauma. And I, I that seemed a little, like, arbitrary to me. Like, really? I don't know. But when I really had to puzzle about the MLK thing, it was similar. It was that if if people in the civil rights minority movement, minorities who were blacks, who were oppressed by the laws and stuff, if they really coalesced, they could actually have had some, uh, you know, good change that could have not totally traumatized our culture. I mean, just, you know, stop those laws that are unfair and, uh, you know, work for what we all recognize as real principles. But instead, the thing was, racked with dialectics, with radicalism, with uh, assassination, all that kind of stuff. And I just feel like um, Pepper, whether he knew it or not, maybe was a limited hangout. Um, I, I don't know what his role really would be, but I feel like him kept saying that this guy openly wept at my pictures. That's when he went anti-war. But the fact was that in 1965, the guy who was his closest, um, one of his closest advisors, Levinson, who was a major player in the Communist Party, USA, CPUSA, had already, they were already put the works in motion to merge the freedom and peace movement. So Pepper maybe didn't know that, but I feel like he always tells that story and it's always to give King cover from being a communist. But then I dug a little deeper and I thought maybe the whole thing from the beginning was set up as a dialectic to traumatize uh, that segment of the population while the JFK thing traumatized the youth uh, of the, you know what I mean? Yeah. So there was my kind of insight. Very that, interesting. That gels. People want to marinate on that. Let me Take know it to an even deeper level. Yeah. Hey, I you literally, it was like the third level of, you know, <laughs> scales that fell from my eyes. I was like, Oh, he was murdered. Oh, Pepper's a limited hangout. Oh, they, it was, it was all set up for the beginning. You know, it's just, I don't know. Then you start feeling yeah. a little, you you start, it, it's like what James Jesus Angleton said. He was the head of counter espionage at the CIA during that time. And, and I think he was aware of the JFK assassination. I know you got to go. I'll wrap it up. But he said he was just crazily paranoid. <laughs> he just couldn't trust anybody. That's why I like having a son with Down syndrome. I'm like, dude, I could trust you. Yeah. I'm not suggesting I'm crazily paranoid. I, I totally get it. You, you start to ask. You start to think. Like, so many my different, brain hurts. <laughs> right. But 
when you read about the history of some of this stuff and you read at the things that they suggest, they go to that deep level precisely because people won't go there. So it's a fine line. I totally get it. Right. Like, is MLK what you see is what you get? Did they, yeah. did the Rockefellers really prop him up? to let him do what he wanted. It's kind of like Warren Buffett and Obama. Did he really give Obama all that money and he's just waiting there wondering what's going to happen next? Yeah. It seems like I, I think it's interesting that Obama kind of headed up this worldwide tour of let's get a common set of facts, which is spirit which is kind of the kind of the theme of the whole fight against fake news. Well, I always called him the surveillance president. And I, I thought he might usher in the censorship era, too. Then I thought it was Hillary. Looks like it's Trump. By reaction. Right. Well, there I guess we'll see, we'll see where it goes from here. Yes, we will. If your children are in the school and they're getting fake news curriculum, <laughs> take a look at it. Make sure it's not diverting them away from some of the real questions they should be asking. It's not like they do give – quality information sometimes the problem is the assumption of the entire fake news curriculum they're spreading is that the mainstream media should always be trusted and yes. they're simply it pointing is good out, information a lot of the stuff right, is they're pointing out manipulation stuff. tactics but they're not they're not going to the deeper level they're not pointing out the broad strategies and that's the important thing is the broad strategies the history of it the people that are most likely to deceive them. Those are the things they need to learn. One other thing that I noticed when I was really trying to crack the code on the core, what do they call it, common core, they would always say there's no content. There's no content in the common core. So it just tells you like, so they won't tell you what to teach in history class. They just, they, I don't even think they want to teach history class. But what they do, what they want to do, and my kids fall for this, and no amount of teaching kids about how to do effective research is going to guard them against this. What they do is they take reading comprehension in English and they put like uh, president Donald Trump was widely regarded as the biggest racist who ever sat in Oval <laughs> office. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Par- parse that sentence. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they know? presume. Right. And my kid said to me, Oh mom, I, we've been doing, I've been practicing these standardized tests and I learned so much just from the reading comprehension. I was like, Whoa, it's a pack of lies. <laughs> yeah. But I, I sit there with this, my dance kid in the car and they start talking about Donald Trump. It's like, I hate him. I'm like what? I never, I don't hate him. I never say anything like that. He gets it from school. And the teachers say he doesn't get it from them. Like he definitely is getting it from you. You're not saying I hate him. But you're saying stuff like he believes in slavery, you know, like he, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It gets into their minds and you can see it with the Downs kid because he doesn't, he doesn't know how to, how to gloss things over. And, you know, he just can't, he can only think of the concrete thing that that's underneath it all, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I feel like. I feel like I could just break down and start crying while I'm ordering coffee at Starbucks or something. And the barista might ask, what's wrong? Are you okay? And I can just say, I was just thinking about those poor, dark-skinned Haitian children that our president hates so badly. Who come oh, and from, she, she'd take and, you and to they, the they would totally room. go, oh my God, I totally get it. <laughs> yeah, it's like we have a coloring room in the back. <laughs> <laughs> There's like 15 people back there right now. <laughs> Rocking back and it. forth in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it looks like we're about out of time today. Thank everybody for listening. Go to propagandareportdaily.com and subscribe to the podcast on 
iTunes or on your Android device by clicking on one of the little buttons on the right. Leave us a a rating and a comment on iTunes. That helps us show up higher in the searches, and we always appreciate it. We've gotten some wonderful feedback from you guys, and we love to hear from you. And we always appreciate the support. Thank you again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Propaganda Report. Later. See you later.